Content warning. The following episode is going to contain some scenes of ancient warfare, which generally involves mass killing, gore, and some sexual violence. So if any of those things are uncomfortable subjects or triggering for you, feel free to skip this episode or skip around in the episode, and I'll see you next time. Welcome to Wonders of History. Season 1, Episode 7, Trouble in Paradise, Part 2. You know, one of my favorite things about history is in the name itself. It's a story. It might be a conflicting, impenetrable, spontaneous mess of a story, but... It's a story nonetheless, and that means that just like the more structured stories that we tell around the campfire, or read to escape our mundane routines, or learn about in English class, we can pull themes out of it. We can derive meaning from it. And today, we're going to look at one of those common themes of the human condition. It's one that we find in literature like Fahrenheit 451, or V for Vendetta, and historical events like the rise of fascism in Europe or the fall of the Roman Republic. And just like the people in those stories and those eras, the Sicilian Greeks that are living through the events we'll be covering will have to answer this question for themselves. Does enough chaos and uncertainty ever justify the rule of an authoritarian figure or regime? How long can people live in unstable conditions before they just let themselves be ruled by a despot instead? And then, is dealing with that despotism really any better than the previous conditions were in the first place? Now, a lot of people in my corner of the world, the United States, would answer these questions with an unequivocal, of course not, and some might even turn their noses up with incredulity and disdain for those people who would so easily let their liberties drift away from them. And I think there's a couple of reasons for this. The first is that in my country, we have this little lie we love to tell ourselves that we're living in a meritocracy that's remotely fair or democratic. And the other reason is that when you can't look back in history and find a time where your ancestors were coerced into authoritarianism by chaos, when you just don't have that generational memory, it can be hard to empathize with your fellow human beings who were in that situation. And for any of you whose instant reaction to my questions earlier was that indignant, of course not, I want you to put yourselves in the position of these people that we're about to learn about and open your mind a little to understand that sometimes it's just not as easy to make a decision when you don't have years of hindsight and analysis to guide you when you're deciding your future. With all that said, let's explore the untenable political situation that these Sicilian Greeks were dealing with. Let's get right back in to the story of the Sicilian Wars. So, When we last left off, the Second Sicilian War was still in full swing, and it was taking quite a toll on the Sicilian Greek city of Syracuse. Himilcar Mego and his giant Carthaginian and mercenary army had just captured Akragas in an eight-month hard-fought siege. They had camped inside the once-bustling city, Akragas had been the second most powerful Greek state in Sicily before all this, to wait out the winter, and meanwhile, 
the democratic government back in Syracuse was gasping its last breath. It's time for some much-needed context. Syracuse had been a democracy since the 470s BC, not exactly the same in practice as Athenian democracy, but power was distributed to an extent between the landowning men of the city and citizens of high standing from that selective group could run for various offices. The strain from years of fighting with the Carthaginians, watching them slowly plow through Syracusan allies and proxies, started putting chips and cracks in the system. The Syracusan generals had known no greater shame than the recent retreat from Akragas, and were now at a loss for what to do. The populace of western Sicily was terrified of invasion and enraged at the apparent uselessness of their leadership. Many wealthy citizens were even leaving the island altogether to go wait things out in southern Italy, and into all this madness steps a politician by the name of Dionysius. Now, Dionysius has been in the background of our Sicilian story for a while now, though we haven't properly introduced him. Born roughly around 430 BC, Dionysius was the son of an upper-middle-class Syracusan citizen. Thus, he would have been immersed in the idiosyncrasies of Greek democracy and the political life of a male citizen from an early age. In his late teens and early 20s, which is a pretty standard age for a period where people get married at 15 and 16, he began his career as a minor bureaucrat of some sort, probably handling public works, taxes, or something similar. In 409, when Hannibal Mago invaded Sicily, Dionysius served with distinction in the army of 40,000 that was sent to support the Syracusan allies. He saw firsthand what the Carthaginians were capable of at Himera in particular. Dionysius returned to his city later in 409, probably with a couple of small scars and more than a little hatred for Carthage. This was an era where concepts like honor and glory were cornerstones of masculinity after all. So far, Dionysius had followed the path of least resistance. He'd done everything expected from a young citizen of Syracuse. But, even from an early age, Dionysius was extraordinarily ambitious and cruel, and these traits would be shown in greater relief as he sought to leave a permanent legacy in Syracuse. The first time his deadly yet efficient personality really jumps out at you from the pages of history is during a political assassination he was involved in that took place in 407 BC, two years after Hannibal Mago left the island. And it's actually an assassination that we've brought up before, but not in a lot of detail. I'm speaking, of course, about the fate of Hermocrates. Remember from last episode that Hermocrates was a Syracusan admiral and politician that had fought for Sparta in the Peloponnesian War. While he was away in mainland Greece, his political enemies back home, led by a guy named Diocles, rescinded his command and forced him into exile. Furious at both this and the defeats that Syracuse had suffered at the hands of Hannibal Mago, Hermocrates gathered a small army of disaffected refugees and mercenaries using his own personal fortune and raided the Punic western coast of Sicily in 408. This was entirely unauthorized by Syracuse, and although it was a popular move with the common people and citizens, D. 
Diocles and the leadership of Syracuse did not like it one bit. I mean, Hermocrates is poking the hornet's nest of all hornet's nests, and Syracuse is going to have to deal with the fallout if Carthage decides to attack again. It was at least in part due to this change in public opinion that Diocles and his bloc, who had opposed taking revenge on Carthage because that was exactly what their greatest enemy was currently doing, were exiled and lost their majority in the Syracusan government. Hermocrates had won this power struggle. The moderates that replaced them were more open to an aggressive stance towards the Carthaginians, but they still didn't like Hermocrates because they worried that if he returned back to Syracuse after his little rampage, he would leverage his popularity with the people as this rebellious trailblazer and make himself a new tyrant. Hermocrates, to these moderates, had to be stopped. And so, the Syracusan leadership began plotting to prevent autocracy from gripping their nation, which as we shall see, is exactly what ended up happening. Hermocrates' forces eventually lost their momentum in western Sicily and had to retreat back east in 407, where he was killed in 407 by those same political enemies upon his arrival. Now, last time, that's all we said of the matter, but Diodorus Siculus goes into a bit more detail than that, detail that's important for us to cover if we want to know the full story of Dionysius. Hermocrates actually made it as far east as Gela, a Syracusan allied city on the southern coast of Sicily, even further east than Akragas. And heads up, keep that geographic mental image of Gela in your head because we're going to be talking about it a lot more very soon. But anyway, the night that Hermocrates made it to Gela, he and his close associates were ambushed at the gate by an armed gang hired by guess who, and well, cut to pieces. Among this game was none other than Dionysius, who was not afraid to get his hands dirty, politically speaking. And now speaking of politics, this is all getting super politically complicated, and Part of me is regretting my decision not to just write, so Dionysus rose to power and move on. But I guess I'm just the type of masochist who likes plunging into the confusing mess of ancient Sicilian politics. So in case you're as confused as I was when I first read about all this, again, it helps to keep some sort of flow sheet of who's connected to who, I'll give you a brief review before we move on. There's a democratic system in Syracuse with two rival factions, one led by Hermocrates, and the other led by Diocles. Hermocrates gets command of a Syracusan fleet to go fight for their Spartan allies against Athens, and does quite well for himself. Diocles, meanwhile, is leading the infantry against Hannibal Mago at Himera, infantry which young Dionysius was serving in, incidentally. Then, Diocles gets whooped at Himera, and because Hermocrates is doing so well, he arranges for him to be exiled and stripped of his command. Hermocrates gets angry, of course, and leads a rogue army against Carthage as a way of flipping off Diocles and his party, who were anti-war against Carthage. Public opinion sways over to Hermocrates, and Diocles' faction is purged from the government. The new Syracusan leaders think that Hermocrates would be dangerous to democracy if he returns, so they arrange for his murder as he's marching home. Dionysius, slowly moving into the spotlight of Syracusan politics as he is, is a minor player in this conspiracy. Got it? 
Great. Okay, so Dionysius had a hand in killing Hermocrates. Big deal. Why does this matter? Well, his participation in this murder was probably just him paying his dues to the Hermocratean opposition, who still had a fundamentally anti-war stance when it came to Carthage. And, you know, it's hard to blame them when they're so close to the smoldering ruins of Salinas and Himera. But Dionysius is about to do a political 180 and shiv his former masters in the ribs. So now we fast forward to 406, a year later, to where we left off the narrative last episode, and where we started this one. The cousins Himilcar and Hannibal Mago have returned to Sicily and besieged Akragas. Hannibal had died of the plague, and with a little luck and sheer force of will, Himilcar had held out and managed to finally capture the city after eight months. Syracuse had been compelled to send forces to go help, but they had shamefully retreated, so now the whole anti-war stance of the leadership from last year was under severe scrutiny from the terrified populace. 406 was coming to an end, and the Syracusans had only a winter to figure out how they were going to ward off the encroaching Carthaginian army. The citizens of Syracuse, and remember that means land-owning men, because these are the Greeks we're talking about, were so incensed by what they saw as sheer incompetence on the part of their statesmen that they organized a massive assembly of citizens to determine the course of the state, as was their right by the Syracusan constitution. And if you've been paying attention to all the foreshadowing, you won't be surprised to hear that Dionysius took this as his opportunity to cement his place in history. He strode into the assembly and unleashed rhetorical hell on his former allies in the government, you know, the ones that he had helped perform that assassination for. In a series of speeches given to these crowds of inflamed citizens that made up the assembly, he called the Syracusan leadership cowards, traitors, buffoons, every name in the book for their frankly shocking mismanagement of the Second Sicilian War in the past several years. It actually got so heated in the session that Dionysius was fined heavily for what all these politicians that he was roasting considered slander and disrupting public order. But Dionysius had really struck a chord with the people of Syracuse, so much so that one really wealthy citizen actually paid the fine in full so that Dionysius could keep attending the meetings of the assembly and keep defaming these politicians. His demagoguery ended up getting all the current Syracusan generals that had failed against the Carthaginians before booted out of power, and he used this opportunity to get his new wild fan base to appoint him as a replacement general. Dionysius now had a seat at the table with all the other Syracusan leaders. Plus, he had something that the rest of them didn't, the ear of the people. So no matter how much those other generals and magistrates despised him, which Diodorus says on no uncertain terms they did, there was no way that they could get rid of him now, no matter what schemes they tried. Quantity, after all, has a quality all its own. From here on out, Dionysius outright refused to give legitimacy or work with the other generals and politicians of Syracuse in their attempts to plan the war that winter. He performed his duties in the comfort of his home with his close friends, advisors, and his own personal guard. In the assemblies, he would 
directly accused them of taking bribes from the Carthaginians and conspiring to tear down the great Sicilian Greek civilization that revolved around Syracuse. The end goal was to get the rest of these generals fired so that he would be given sole command of the Syracusan army and thereby stage a military coup. But first, he needed to build a loyal base around him, one that wasn't just favorable to him because of his political lambasting in the assemblies, but instead directly tied to him financially. So first, he proposed a vote in the assembly to recall and forgive droves of citizens that had been exiled for various crimes and misdeeds. This included giving these people their lands and properties that had been revoked by the Syracusan government. So you can imagine how huge of a favor they owed Dionysius after this decree passed, and he certainly didn't let them forget. Now, I don't want to spend the entire episode talking about Dionysius because this is kind of supposed to be a series from the perspective of Carthage, so I'm going to fast forward over Dionysius' smaller maneuvers during this time. With that said, if you want to look up the full story of his rise to power, go read up on the Sicilian Wars, or even better, read Diodorus Siculus himself. Basically, what happens next is that Dionysius accuses the other Syracusan generals of underpaying all their soldiers and mercenaries in their armies. He claims that this is because they are all working for Himilcar, who told them not to bother funding an army that was supposed to throw the fight anyway. Oh, and look, Dionysius has a letter from Himilcar himself that he intercepted right here in his back pocket with proof of this treachery. I wonder how that got there. So the apoplectic populace voted him as the supreme commander of the army during the next assembly. The groundwork was laid for his autocracy. Now, it was just a matter of increasing the pay of all the men-at-arms under the Syracusan banner and conscripting as many new men as he could. Then, he staged a clever little false assassination attempt, escaped his supposed murderers by fleeing into a temple, and then gave a courageous speech to the People's Assembly that ended up getting him a personal guard of 600 mercenaries. With the support of the commons, a devoted army, and a Carthaginian scapegoat to keep his people distracted, Dionysius, this bureaucrat-turned-generalissimo, officially declared himself Tyrant of Syracuse in 405 BC, ending over 70 years of democratic rule. But before we move on from the Syracusan side of things, we should probably address something, and that's the seriously bad rap that we've given Dionysius so far. Now, in explaining his rise to power, I've tried my best not to outwardly demonize him myself, because trust me, Diodorus Siculus does plenty of that already in the sources I'm working with. He makes it very clear that Dionysius was not looked upon fondly by later generations of Sicily. And to be honest, I have trouble blaming them for taking this view, even if it doesn't make for a very neutral history. From what we've learned about Dionysius so far, it's not hard to understand why he came off as such a jerk to the political elites of the city. And we're about to see that Dionysius was not exactly a benevolent tyrant. In fact, he inflicted plenty of cruelties on his own population as well as his foreign enemies. But the fact remains, and this relates to the question I posed at the beginning of the episode, he was overwhelmingly loved by the citizens and common people, because remember, 
that distinction does exist in Greek society for much of his rule. I mean, it was by arguing on behalf of the people that he got that initial position as general in the first place, and we even saw him enact policies that some might consider pretty just if looked at through a different lens. Like, remember when he let all those exiled citizens return to their homes and gave them back their confiscated lands? And here's where that difficult question from the beginning comes into play. And it's especially difficult for me to answer, because my political leanings are all for radical democracy. I actually don't believe my government or others like it are anywhere near democratic enough. And, you know, nevertheless, I still find myself thinking about these questions. What does it take for populism to become corrupted? When are the current interests of the people not actually best for the said people? In the case of the tyranny of Dionysius, it's clear that, initially at least, he really did things that his constituents were demanding of their government. And maybe we shouldn't be so quick to side with Diodorus Siculus and all his talk of the ignorant masses that so myopically brought about the end of a very, very, very selective democracy. But I mean, depending on your political and historical biases, that's not the only approach you could take to this subject. Maybe Dionysius was just following the whims of some loud minority of citizens and didn't actually have the support of all the non-citizen lower classes. Or hey, I mean, he might not have even cared about the will of the people at all. It might have just been some clever ruse to gain absolute power. Without more contemporary insight, I really wish I had a time machine sometimes, we won't ever know with certainty. But just in case, keep all of these possibilities in mind as we continue. Meanwhile, come the early summer of 405 BC, Himilcar is once again on the move. It feels good to finally talk about Carthage again. See, unlike Hannibal Mago before him, Himilcar is not going to return home until Syracuse itself comes to terms with him. He's going to keep marching on their allies and eliminate them one by one. So he and his army pack up, leave Akragas, and march along the southern coast of Sicily over to Gela. Diodorus Siculus says that when they left, the Carthaginians burned the city to the ground and destroyed all the temples and statues that survived the flames. I'm not sure whether or not to believe that last bit, because at the same time he throws an interesting little side note about this huge bronze statue of Apollo outside Akragos that the Carthaginians took and sent to Tyre as a gift for their former mother city. It's kind of cool how these different worlds are still connected somewhat if not politically, then culturally at least. Well, at any rate, Himilcar was off to Gela, and Dionysius was probably aware of his destination, or at the very least, was operating under this assumption. In the early spring, Dionysius had actually traveled to Gela to inspect the garrison and defenses of the city, knowing that it was likely going to be the next victim of a Carthaginian siege. And here's where we see one of the failings of Dionysius' bid at tyranny, to satisfy one of the fundamental promises he made to his supporters. Because even though the Geloans had begged him to send troops to supplement their army in case of an attack, Dionysius refused, because, you know, he was kind of busy building his own personal army to seize control of his own city. But the initial numerical disadvantage that the Galoans faced, caused by Dionysius' refusal to help at first, might have come back to bite him in the butt. Because when Himilcar arrived outside those walls, 
he wasn't messing around. First, he ordered that dozens of nearby trees be chopped down and turned into timber for a super-fortified siege camp to the west of the city, with trenches, wooden walls, and a bunch of other surprises to stop Dionysius in his tracks when he inevitably made it over with his army. The struggle for Gela had begun, but the Geloans, whose fortifications, both man-made and natural, were not as strong as those of Akragas or Himera, opted for a different strategy than just outright defense to hold out against the Carthaginians. Small units of Galoan infantry would slip out of the city and attack groups of foragers or more organized Carthaginian patrols. And this tactic actually worked really well, according to Diodorus Siculus. But at the end of the day, Himilcar still had the numbers, and the Galoans were still trapped inside their city, which was being hammered incessantly by battering rams and infantry assaults. And then finally, Dionysius arrived on the scene. He brought with him a pretty sizable army. Diodorus says it was 50,000 strong, but he notes that Timaeus claimed it was 30,000 instead. Either way, it wasn't a force to be trifled with. This was the army of former exiles, loyal recruits, and freshly conscripted citizens that Dionysius had been building all year. These Sicilian Greeks were accompanied by mercenaries from southern Italy, and oh yeah, a fleet of 50 ships was matching their speed as they marched along the coast. Dionysius set up a beach camp on the opposite side of the city as the Carthaginian camp, and for several weeks, he sought to weaken the Carthaginians by going after their supply lines. And this opening move kind of makes you wonder if he's trying to get some symbolic revenge on Himilcar, because let's remember, during the siege of Akragas that we talked about last episode, Himilcar's victory was apparently secured by a last-minute raid on Syracusan grain transports. So this time around, Dionysius has his ships blockade the Carthaginian camp and sends light infantry and cavalry patrols for a couple weeks to join the Galoans in ambushing foragers. This strategy persisted for a couple of weeks at least, like I just said, until Dionysius saw an opportunity for a decisive strike. Now, if you want a super in-depth look at the tactics used by both sides in this engagement, I would suggest reading Diodorus Siculus himself, because I'm only going to give a concise tactical overview and then talk about the actual outcome of the battle. So, Dionysius divided his army into three groups. One would attack Himilcar's camp by going through the trenches and defenses, which were located on the northern edge of the camp. Another would hop on board the Syracusan fleet, head west along the coast, and come at the Carthaginians from the south of their camp. His center force, meanwhile, would go straight for the siege engines and sappers trying to breach the walls of Gela. And so, the attack began. The Syracusan detachment on the coast was the first to reach their target because they were actually being ferried over by ship. So they start the whole assault off by storming the beaches south of Himilcar's siege camp and they draw the attention of the Carthaginians, initially at least, to the southern coast. Now at first, this amphibious force was able to fight their way off the beach, into the siege camp itself, but once Himilcar instilled order back into his men and set up an organized defensive line, the outnumbered Syracusans were kind of screwed. They were enveloped on one side by a slowly advancing wave of Iberians and Libyans, and on the other side by the wrathful gods of the sea. The soldiers that Dionysius had sent to attack from the other flank, the northern side, 
having to march overland, of course, took longer to approach the camp. And then they had to contend with all the Carthaginian fortifications. So imagine you're in a marching column, and all of a sudden you have to traverse a giant trench and then scale several wooden palisades, all while under fire from thousands of slingers, javelin troops, and Libyan infantry. Not exactly my cup of tea. Originally, Dionysius wanted to negate his numerical disadvantage by simultaneously attacking both sides of the camp, but instead, Himilcar had plenty of time to rout the Syracusans coming in from the coast, and then just turn his line around north and smash into the already struggling attackers. Dionysius' shattered army withdrew behind the walls of Gela, where the Galoan garrison had been tentatively waiting to see who would win the engagement. They, of course, were hesitant to just sally forth and help the Syracusans because in the event that the Carthaginians managed to beat them back, which they kind of just did, then the city would have only been further undermanned. Well, now the two Greek armies were stuck within the confines of Gela, which are not really that strong as we mentioned earlier, thoroughly demoralized and outnumbered. The siege engines of Himilcar were still intact, and any advantage that Dionysius had hoped to secure by attacking from multiple angles was now a moot point. There was only one flank that Himilcar need concern himself with now. So it was time for Dionysius to dip on out of there. That night, he ordered that the Galoans be rounded up and evacuated from the city, and then escorted into Syracusan lands. With this said and done, he, his advisors, and the rest of his army snuck out and headed for Camarina, another coastal city even further east of Gela. The following morning, Himilcar woke up to an empty city and, discovering Dionysius had given him the slip, spent the whole day looting Gela of its valuables before packing up and continuing the advance eastward. Starting to sense a pattern here. Meanwhile, when Dionysius reached Camarina, he didn't even bother trying to organize a defense. Instead, this time, he told a terrified Camerinian populace that they were to abandon their homes and possessions immediately and travel in groups northeast to Syracuse and its surrounding satellite cities. Think about the shock and despair that a statement like that would engender. Imagine being a proud Greek citizen of Camerina, and suddenly this tyrant, a tyrant who had risen to power solely on promises of revenge against the Carthaginians, was basically forcing you at sword point to become a refugee from the Carthaginians now. And yeah, forcing is the right wording here, because the alternative was either to die in battle against Carthage or be enslaved by Himilcar and sent off to spend your days in Libya or Sardinia. Now you might be getting a taste of why Dionysius wasn't exactly an exalted figure in Sicilian Greek history. But to be fair to him, this was just kind of the pragmatic approach. There was no point in sacrificing the remainder of his army just for the dignity of Camarina, right? Well, that's not what his soldiers thought. Many of them, especially the Greek mercenaries from southern Italy that he had hired, who had taken severe casualties at Gela, they were actually the majority of that amphibious force that got trapped between the Carthaginian camp and the beach, thought that Dionysius had just used threat of the Carthaginians to seize power for himself. And let's face it, they had a good reason to think that. I mean, just look at Dionysius's track record so far. He refused to give Gela reinforcements for their garrison before Himilcar even made it to the walls, and then when the siege of Gela did start, he took his sweet time marching over. 
Then he waited days before launching a proper attack on the Carthaginians, an attack in which he very conspicuously stayed away from the worst of the fighting, because he was in that whole center group that was supposed to attack all those siege engineers. And to top it all off, he had just completely abandoned two cities, one without any resistance. Now, the Italian Greeks were cleaning up his mess, escorting scores of miserable refugees, fellow Greeks, away from their homes to an uncertain fate. The closer that the mercenaries got to Syracuse, the more angered with their general they became. And soon enough, the Italian Greeks were in open revolt. According to Diodorus Siculus, they stormed into the city, right past the garrison, who apparently hadn't gotten the news of their army's full-scale retreat yet, straight into Dionysius' villa, and after ransacking his house for his personal fortune, a group of them actually sexually assaulted his wife. And Diodora Siculus, not a little insensitive to the severe trauma that this woman, who unfortunately goes unnamed, had just suffered, reminds us that in patriarchal Greek culture, this would have been an incredible insult to Dionysius himself. After they finished looting their former general's property, they fled Syracuse and took refuge in another Sicilian Greek city, which Dionysius promptly marched over to. He successfully suppressed the rebellion, and I'll spare you all the gory details because I don't want to get sidetracked, but let's just say there was a lot of on-the-spot mass executions that drenched that city in mercenary blood. Alright. Now finally, we can get back to the Carthaginian perspective of things once again. I've missed you, Himakar, old buddy. Right after Dionysius, his army, and the citizens of Camarina fled, Himilcar once again found himself in control of an empty city. Now you might be thinking, now that Dionysius is distracted by the revolt of his mercenaries and the Syracusan countryside is in pandemonium, Surely, Himilcar is going to march north and end the rivalry between Carthage and Syracuse once and for all, right? Wrong. But the only reason this didn't happen was because Himilcar had a distraction of his own to deal with. And that was the same pesky plague that had been killing Carthaginian soldiers since the year before. You'll recall that last episode, when Himilcar and his cousin Hannibal landed in Sicily and began the siege of Akragas, an outbreak of typhus or a similar disease struck the Carthaginian army pretty hard. Hannibal Mago had actually died of the illness, and Himilcar had to unceremoniously succeed him as the new suffete and finish the campaign. While we may have moved on from talking about the plague, but that doesn't mean it wasn't still there. In fact, the plague had been racking up a pretty high death count among the Carthaginians throughout all these sieges, and it apparently had even spread to some parts of Carthaginian North Africa, likely through Punic trade routes. Keep in mind, though, we don't really know if the plague originated back in Carthage or in Sicily, so it's really impossible to say which direction it spread first. So as much as Himilcar might have wanted to go for the killing blow now that he had grown into his role as a general, it just wasn't an option anymore. And you know, who knows, there might even have been seditious talk from men under his command that obviously would have forced his hand in the matter. Diodorus Siculus doesn't really give us much to go on, but whatever the case, Himilcar sent a delegation to discuss peace terms with Dionysius. It's a bit ironic, really, given that these two have been at odds with each other for so long now that each is the only one who could really understand the position that the other was in. And sure enough, Dionysius agreed to peace, 
even though the terms were not in his favor. Carthage would keep everything that Himilcar and Hannibal had conquered. That meant Salinas, Himera, Akragas, Gela, and Camarina were now a part of their empire. But remember that subjects of the Carthaginian Empire were not directly annexed by Carthage. This would have been the same deal that the Carthaginians had with cities and territories like Utica, Lepkis Magna, and Gades, where the cities would decide their internal affairs but have to pay tribute and donate troops to Carthage regularly. But wait, hold on a second. Aren't all those cities that Carthage had just taken by siege in Sicily empty now? Some of them are even burned down, right? Well, yeah, but not for long. Part of the deal was that the inhabitants of those cities that had either fled or been taken prisoner by the Carthaginians would now be allowed to return home to business as usual. No more refugees flooding the Syracusan countryside. Although, keep in mind, you know, as we'll be discussing in future episodes, that those cities, when they actually rebuilt, they didn't exactly get to rebuild things to their original Greek standards. Now, in addition to all this, the peace treaty also contained a clause about indigenous Sicilian groups, because, you know, we can't forget about the Sicils and Olybians that were oh so important to Carthaginian trade interests, right? The native cities were allowed political autonomy under the treaty, although they probably did have to pay Carthage some tribute as well, so really they're just as much part of the empire as the newly won Greek cities. When this was all said and done, Himilcar returned home with his deeply shaken and significantly smaller army. But history wouldn't remember him for his early peace negotiations. It would remember him for expanding the Carthaginian Empire to its apex in terms of territorial size. A good three-fourths of Sicily was now under Carthage's control. So the Second Sicilian War was over. It had lasted from 410 to 404 BC, killed a Carthaginian statesman, and almost killed another. Now, I know I just said that Carthage's empire was at its height, and with the imperialist, colonialist narratives we have in the West, that's usually a good thing, right? A sign of greatness and virtue. But your average Carthaginian wasn't exactly riding that high. This probably wasn't a good time to be an average person in Punic North Africa. In the following years after the war ended, the plague was still inflicting mass suffering on the population. We obviously don't have the figures of the death toll or anything, but if you want an idea of how nasty this must have been to live through, let's look at the material conditions of ancient life and how a plague would have affected ancient people. Typhus is a bacteria that causes incredibly high fever, aches and pains, gastrointestinal issues like diarrhea and vomiting, and swelling. If left untreated, it will slowly kill its victim and render them pretty much paralyzed by exhaustion and completely delirious in the meantime. Not exactly a fun way to go. Now, we all know that it's still miserable to deal with stomach bugs and fevers, even with the help of modern medicine, but imagine trying to do it without your Campbell's chicken noodle soup and Tylenol. Plus, typhus spreads through things like lice and fleas, so infection rates in overcrowded cities without closed sewer systems and cramped tenements and streets would be way higher than they would today. Yuck. Despite all this, Himilcar was probably doing just fine back at home, resting on the laurels of his victory and maybe making some sacrifices to Reshef, that's the god of plagues, remember, on the side to help his people through the crisis. But soon enough, he would once again find himself involved in eastern Sicily, because remember, 
we still have five more of these wars to cover. With that said, let's explore what Dionysius was busy with in these intervening years between the Second and the Third Sicilian War. And once again, I'm not going to be totally comprehensive here because this is meant to be from a Carthaginian rather than Syracusan perspective, so after dealing with that mercenary revolt and signing a pretty embarrassing treaty with Himilcar, Dionysius was really feeling the heat back home. So obviously, his first instinct was to rebuild his military might, because, you know, that's kind of the foundation of his power at this point. Dionysius went back to Syracuse and funded several massive public works projects, including a wall on one rather undefended side of the city and a citadel that he and his army could garrison if the city was ever under siege. Next, he busied himself with making Syracuse a semi-imperial power in the sliver of eastern Sicily that wasn't dominated by Carthage now. Gone were the days of Syracuse being the senior partner in alliances with their neighbors. Now, Dionysius was trying to conquer native and Greek cities in his sphere of influence. But while he was out campaigning, the people of Syracuse revolted against his tyranny, and he had to scramble back home to take control. Miraculously, he actually managed to assert dominance over Syracuse once again, but this time he had to suppress the citizens that had once put him in power with military force. After the uprising was once again crushed, Dionysius went straight back to the battlefield, but as he conducted siege after siege with mixed success, he started to become annoyed with how many potential slaves or tributaries would just flee west to Carthaginian territory and escape his grasp. This would have been just the latest penstroke on the long list of embarrassments and slights that Dionysius felt he had endured from Carthage and Himilcar specifically. His yearning for revenge couldn't be satisfied without another war to restore the honor of himself and Syracuse. See how these conflicts just kind of play right into each other? So Dionysius changed tact. He returned home and got to work turning the Syracusan economy into a war machine. Using public funds, which were of course completely now at his disposal, he sent for the brightest minds of the Greek world to come to Syracuse. In the lower quarters of the streets, conscripted laborers were cranking out weapons of all shapes and sizes. State-of-the-art sets of armor meant for various fighting styles were crafted for all the citizen soldiers and mercenaries of Syracuse. And mercenaries, let's not forget mercenaries. The Campanians, a group of Italians that Carthage had actually hired in the last war, were flooding into the city now. Dock workers constructed a fleet of quadriremes and quinquiremes that rivaled the scale of Himilcar's navy. So we're talking almost 300 ships here, folks. And if you're wondering what those terms mean, remember what, that a trireme has three floors, each with a row of oarsmen. So a quadrireme has four, and a quinquireme has five. All those years of high school Spanish and French are still good for something, right? And we can't forget about Dionysius' famous contribution to the Western military tradition, catapults and ballistae. Now, a catapult is a siege weapon that can hurl giant projectiles, usually rounded stones at walls, to send them crashing down. A ballista, on the other hand, is almost like an enlarged crossbow, and the tension it generates can fire a bolt the size of a javelin at high speeds with remarkable accuracy. Instead of being directed at walls, the ballista was a deadly anti-personnel weapon, 
highly efficient at breaking up large formations of men or pesky shield walls. Just to get an idea, go Google image search what I'm talking about and then picture firing it into a crowd of people and think about what that would do. The result is usually a human shish kebab. Now, Dionysius almost certainly did not sit down and draw up the plans for these machines himself. Rather, all the engineers he was gathering in Syracuse made significant improvements on already existing Greek siege weapons and codified them into instruments that would be used by people like Belisarius of the Byzantine Empire almost 1,000 years later. And don't get me wrong, although you can probably hear the interest and fascination in my voice, I'm not bringing all this up to glorify Dionysius or what he's doing. I mean, thousands of people are getting exploited only for other people to die for an imperialist war. What I want to do instead is remind you of the awe that a feat as complex as this inspires. The point is that this was an endeavor that required incredible amounts of organization, logistics, and effort and most importantly, an ironclad sense of purpose. Think about the amount of planning and labor that goes into not only gathering all the timber and iron needed for weapons and ships, let alone actually building all that stuff efficiently. Human beings are incredible. Moreover, Dionysius actually used this citywide effort to get the common people back on his side. Apparently, he would tour the work camps, converse casually with the laborers, and joke around with them. He would even hand out financial or material rewards to those he deemed extra hard or smart workers. So yes, there is some serious exploitation going on here, but maybe we do need to rehabilitate this historical reputation of Dionysius as some hated dictator, because it's clear from the sources that throughout his rule as a tyrant, he usually had a popular base of support. Well, after months of preparation, he was finally ready to launch his expedition of revenge. But Dionysius wasn't just going to rush into battle again. Before the actual conflict started, he wanted to make sure his position was secure. So he went over to two of those cities that he had actually tried to conquer a couple years before all this, Messina and Regium. Now, why was he worried about these cities that we haven't even mentioned yet? Well, for one, they haven't been super relevant because it was only after Carthage dominated all the other powerful Greek cities that they became political contenders in Sicily. And for another, we have to consider their geographic location. Messina and Regium are actually quite close to one another. Messina is situated on the very northeastern tip of Sicily, near the strip of water where mainland Italy comes closest to the island. And Regium is on the other side of that strip of water. And if you think of Italy as a leg with a boot, then Regium would be right on the tip of the toes. This, of course, puts both of them to the north of Syracuse, which is on the southeastern coast of Sicily. So if Dionysius was going to march his army west to face the Carthaginians, he kind of needed to make sure that these two potential threats wouldn't just stab him in the back. Using some clever political finagling, a few marriages here, a few bribes there, and land grants, Dionysius secured their non-aggression at least. Back home, to eradicate any dissent against the war before it had even started, he launched a smear campaign against Carthage, holding lavish dinners in which he gave speeches about how once Carthage was done coping with their plague, they would just attack Syracuse anyway, so Syracuse might as well be the first to break the peace treaty. Furthermore, he confiscated all the property of Carthaginian or Punic peoples living inside Syracuse and encouraged the same to be done all throughout eastern Sicily. 
Now, you may be surprised to hear that there are Punic settlers living in Greek-dominated lands, but let's remember that the Punic diaspora is vast, and the Mediterranean world was cosmopolitan. We may be talking about Greek versus Punic conflict in the grand scale of things, but day-to-day -day life was much more nuanced. Many Punic merchants had made homes in Greek port cities and set up their own lucrative trade fleets or other enterprises, especially in Syracuse, a trade hub of Sicily. And that's not to mention common Punic people that didn't own private property per se, but lived in majority Greek cities and worked as laborers. All across eastern Sicily, these people were suddenly persecuted, thrown out of their city by mobs, only for their former homes and other personal property to be taken by the state. Oftentimes, these refugees wouldn't even be allowed the chance to leave, or they would just be tortured, beaten, or killed. These Punic purges only increased in frequency and vehemence as the tyrant of Syracuse continued hounding for war. In 397 BC, seven years after the Second Sicilian War had ended, Dionysius kicked off the third one with a bang. In a not-so-unexpected but still a surprise attack, he and his army marched all the way to the Punic city of Motia on an island off the northwestern coast of Sicily near Mount Eryx. And remember, Motia is an important target. It's where the Carthaginians have stored all their fleets in reserve in every Sicilian conflict we've covered so far. Aside from Panormus and Lilibium, it is the most prominent Punic city on the island. Along the way to Motia, uh, Dionysius was joined by forces from places that should sound familiar to you by now. Hemera, Akragas, Gela, Camarina, all cities that had been put under the Carthaginian yoke, and seeing an opportunity to escape paying tribute, threw their weight behind what they saw as the best chance for a pan-Hellenic Sicily. All of these troops combined put Dionysius in command of nearly 80,000 infantry, 3,000 cavalry, and 200 ships, according to Diodorus Siculus. And given the sheer scale of the Syracusan war effort, I'm almost inclined to take him at his word. These numbers are not reflective of the population of Sicily, but remember all the mercenaries that are here too. But I digress. Dionysius and his army have reached the coast overlooking the island city of Motia. The only piece of infrastructure connecting Motia to a land was a causeway, a thin bridge on top of shallow water. And of course, the Motians had just put a giant hole in it the moment they heard that the Greeks were on their way. So Dionysius and the same acclaimed engineers that had built all those nasty siege weapons for him got to work scoping out the surrounding lands and shallow points in the water. They began the construction of a series of moles, which are basically colossal mounds of earth and debris that besiegers can use to get across a moat or another water-based fortification. So really, they were just building their own causeway over to the city. Now this process was obviously going to take some time. I mean, Imagine how much stuff you have to dump into water to get it to actually start piling up. Meanwhile, Dionysius took part of his army and went back over inland to preemptively strike nearby Punic or native Sicilian cities that remained loyal to Carthage before they could even muster a force to relieve their Motian neighbors. He put Segesta, remember that was the Olymian city that was kind of the whole reason the Second Sicilian War even started, under siege, and sent detachments to raid the countrysides of Panormus and Solus, thereby extracting resources to supply his army with. 
particularly around Panormus, Dionysius had a ton of trees cut down so he could use the timber to fortify his own siege camp and build even more contraptions of war. Now, by this time, Himilcar was well aware that Dionysius had broken the peace treaty, but he knew that it was going to take a while to gather an army that was potent enough to deal with the Syracusan threat. So, in the meantime, he planned the ancient equivalent of a special ops mission to slow the siege of Motia down a bit. Apparently, Himilcar ordered ten triremes to sail to Syracuse, slip into the harbor at night, and sink all the ships. Remember that gigantic fleet that Dionysius had assembled a couple years ago? Well, he had only taken part of it with him. And now, thanks to Himilcar's little plan, the rest had been busted open by Carthaginian rams and were now lying at the bottom of the harbor. Now, this brings me to something I've been meaning to address for a while now, and that's kind of the undeniable fact that we can't just take everything Diodorus Siculus is saying as truth. I mean, as much as this whole Mission Impossible-style sabotage makes for a wonderful little action scene, chances are the reality of what really happened is more complicated than that. The same idea applies to all of the sacred temples that the Carthaginians supposedly looted and the gargantuan numbers of soldiers that sometimes appear on both sides of this conflict. So enjoy all this drama, but take some things with a grain of salt. And now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. So by now, the Syracusan moles were finished, and Dionysius was finally able to move his army and siege weapons up against the walls. But the Motines didn't lose hope, though, because they knew that Carthage was doing the best it could to defend such a prosperous tributary. And sure enough, one morning, a fleet of about a hundred Punic ships, led by Himilcar himself, stormed the Motian harbor, which Syracuse had been blockading with their own ships, and rammed or set fire to yet another good chunk of Dionysius's massive fleet. A scramble to beach the remainder of the Syracusan fleet ensued, with Dionysius ordering some of his men to haul any intact vessels onto the shore while his missile troops stopped Himilcar's fleet from interfering too much. And here's where the ballistic come in handy, because they were so effective at puncturing holes in Carthaginian ships and while scattering the infantry and missile troops on deck, that Himilcar was actually forced to retreat from the harbor. Realizing that Dionysius still outnumbered him at sea, Himilcar returned to Carthage to continue mustering his army. Motia was just going to have to hang in there for now. But for how long could they last? With no more distractions, Dionysius ordered the assault of the walls to commence. And fair warning, this is probably going to be the most brutal siege we've covered on the show so far. The emotions involved on both sides are so high. I mean, tension isn't even a good way to describe it. It's outright desperation. The catapults and ballistae add a whole new element to this sort of experience, too. You know, in the last episode, all of the sieges we covered involved ranged troops on the walls harassing ranged troops on the ground and vice versa. Now, the javelin troops and slingers on the Motian battlements are all susceptible to being crushed by giant stones or impaled by bolts. The walls are shaking like crazy as battering rams slam into them constantly. Scores of Syracusans and mercenaries are peppering the defenders and literally jumping onto the ramparts to fight hand-to-hand -hand from siege towers that are six stories tall. And the Motians respond by scaling their turrets, which are situated intermediately between their walls, and hurling burning pitch 
oil and other flammable substances at all of these wooden siege structures. So if you're an attacker on the Syracusan side, you have to be careful not to be melted alive as you enter the fray. Reading the details of this siege and trying to picture myself in the middle of it reminds me of like a messed up game of tug of war. You know that feeling you have when you're playing tug of war and you can feel the other team slowly pulling the rope away from you and you just know that you're about to fall over any second now? Well, imagine that your life depends on not letting that rope go. Every move you make, every slash of the sword or step forwards or backwards is about base instinct, survival. The amount of adrenaline in the air must have been overwhelming. And things only got more intense for the Motians as that rope started to slip. They fought as hard as they could, but the battering rams blew multiple holes into their walls and the Greeks spilled into the city. And then the fighting devolved into that messy street-to-street -street stage that we've seen before at Salinas. Motian citizens would rain arrows, stones, javelins, and rubble down at soldiers on the streets from the rooftops. Imagine having to do that on the roof of your house for a second. Not a pleasant mental image, is it? So Dionysius just ordered that the siege towers be hauled into the city so that his infantry could engage with the Motians on equal footing. So the Syracusans erected bridges and gangways across buildings. Just as the streets below were in chaos, the roofs became some sort of treehouse parkour battlefield nightmare. Diodorus Siculus has these absolutely tragic accounts of Motian civilians so reckless, so desperate not to lose the tug of war, that after their street barricades had been breached, they would keep fighting even when backed into a corner and stabbed or shot multiple times. There were also apparently Motians that just threw themselves at groups of soldiers who were, you know, in the middle of using a gangway to get from rooftop to rooftop, sending everyone in the chaos tumbling to their deaths in the streets six stories below. This state of pandemonium lasted several days, until one night, after yet another vicious assault, Dionysius just had fresh troops take ladders and scale the buildings that he knew Motians were hiding in. When the Motians started to wake up or heard the screams from their neighboring buildings, they panicked and tried to push the ladders over, but more reinforcements kept coming, and by the morning there were just too many Syracusans to contend with. After that, house-to-house -house butchery occurred in every quarter of the city. So indiscriminate was the slaughter that multiple times Dionysus actually had to order his soldiers to stop killing women and children because he was low on funds and he wanted to sell them into slavery. And when even this didn't stop them, Dionysus had to send messengers to pockets of fleeing Motians telling them to go to the nearest temple if they wanted to be spared. Finally, when the only living Motians were taking refuge in the temples, Dionysius had them rounded up to be enslaved and offered the city to his men to loot. He rewarded those who showed bravery or decisiveness with cash prizes, like the first guy who made it up the wall, for example. And oh yeah, any ethnically Greek people that he found just living in the city, because just like there was a Punic population in Syracuse, there was of course a Greek population in Motia, well, he had them all crucified. Motia wasn't just damaged, it was razed. Its entire population was either dead or enslaved. Now, we've established pretty thoroughly that the two wealthiest, largest Punic cities in Sicily so far have been Motia and Panormus, right? Well, guess what? 
you can actually buy a plane ticket to Italy to this day and travel to Panormus. There are still people living there. I'm sure as I type this, people are walking around its streets, sitting in its coffee shops, and strolling around its parks, because ancient Panormus is actually modern-day Palermo. But nobody nowadays is living in Motia, and what Dionysius just did to this city is the reason why. With Motia now a terrifying example of what lay in store for those in western Sicily who opposed Dionysius, many nearby cities entered nominal alliances with him, or at least stopped trying to attack him. And, you know, I can't really blame them. So far, they haven't suffered as much from war as places like Akragas or Himera. But now, it was just as real, and the panic had set in. A notable exception to this panic was Segesta, the Alimian city whose sovereignty Carthage had ensured so often. They, like the Motians, felt that they owed Carthage too much to just give up the fight against these colonizers. And yet, they remained under siege from a part of Dionysius' army and were in no way capable of meaningfully retaliating. After he left Motia, Dionysius just headed over to oversee the siege of Segesta while his army looted the surrounding countryside. That way, they would still be relatively close by to react to the inevitable Carthaginian counterattack that was on its way. And believe me, Carthage is going to retaliate. I mean, the sack of Motia that just happened is the largest disaster they've seen since Hamilcar Magos defeat at Himera in 480, an event that if left unredeemed would forever besmirch the honor of the Magonids and Hamilcar personally. Hamilcar was pissed and he probably was under immense pressure from the Adrim, Ham, and the Council of 104 to do something, because pretty much every statesman or merchant back in Carthage had everything to lose if Punic Sicily was no longer a viable trading partner. Himilcar gathered undoubtedly the largest navy and army to have ever gone to Sicily under the Carthaginian banner. Libyan and Iberian and Sardinian infantry, cavalry, hundreds of ships, siege engines, and chariots. And notice how this isn't the first time we've spoken about a Suffet levying a huge expeditionary force to respond to a Greek attack on Sicily. That's why I'm only addressing what must have been a logistical labyrinth in only a single sentence. But every time we find ourselves in this familiar territory, the scale just gets larger and the stakes just get higher. This time, Diodorus Siculus claims that Carthage was bringing 300,000 infantry, 4,000 cavalry, 400 chariots, 400 triremes, and 600 other ships to transport missiles, weapons, food, horses, and other materiel. Now, of course, I'll add my usual disclaimer that these numbers are probably inflated to make the Greeks look more courageous for standing up to the Punic Horde. I mean, 300,000 infantry, that's around the ballpark estimate of soldiers that historians think fought in Darius's Persian army at the battles of Marathon and Thermopylae. And the Persian Empire was a whole different league than the Carthaginians in terms of both population and square mileage. So 300,000, even with Carthage's use of mercenaries, is a stretch, no matter how you look at it. But... Addressing those numbers is still useful for our purposes. It shows us that things are about to escalate to unprecedented levels. 
The generational struggle for control over this one island, started by the Maganids and escalated by Dionysius, is clearly vital to the honor of both parties and the prosperities of their empires. But was it actually worth it in the end? We've seen plague take the lives of countless Libyans and Iberians, thousands of Syracusans be slaughtered in the name of their city's honor, and dozens of others purged by Dionysius. The homes of both Punic and Greek Sicilians have been destroyed, families have been uprooted, and columns of enslaved people have marched across the island in both directions. And we haven't even gotten to the ironic part yet. The very downfall of both the Maganids and Dionysius is going to be the seemingly endless Sicilian Wars, and it's actually coming for both sooner than they realize. We'll cover the beginning of the end for the Maganids and conclude the story of the most famous tyrant of Syracuse, as well as the fallout for the common people caught up in this whole conflict, next time on Wonders of History.